Hey there, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of The Future of Agriculture. If you believe that agricultural innovation is the solution to many of our world's most important problems, you found the right show. Today's episode touches on two very important topics, food waste and food safety. But we're looking at an often overlooked but very significant area of food waste and food safety, which is mycotoxins in grain. One previous episode that I think about quite often is where we tried to define ag sustainability way back in episode 98 with Mark Brazo. One of his points was, if you really want to make agriculture more sustainable, you need to focus on the crops that are grown on the most acreage. I mean, he used the example, all vegetable crops combined are grown on about 4 million acres in the United States. Compare that as one example to corn which has grown on over 90 million acres. But yet so much of the food waste and food safety discussion tends to focus on fresh produce. Today, though, we have a fascinating story of a company developing a technology to detoxify mycotoxins, which tend to cause big problems in staple crops like corn and wheat, as well as specialty crops like almonds and peanuts. The company is called NanoGuard Technologies, and their CEO, Larry Clark, joins me on the show here today. NanoGuard is a portfolio company of Fulcrum Global Capital, and this is the final episode of the series we're presenting together here in 2020. If you want to catch up on the rest of the series, you can check out episodes 208, 213, 217, and 224. I really enjoyed bringing the Fulcrum Global Capital Venture partners onto the show to share the investor perspective on each of these portfolio companies before you meet the companies themselves. I've heard from some of you that you really like to hear specifically how they source these deals. CFO and venture partner Kevin Lockett says it starts with sort of an open door policy. We're very, very aggressive in looking for companies. We like to think of ourselves as we have a, an open door. Very rarely is there a company that we won't let have a conversation or pitch with us because we, we want to see all and hear all. And so typically what our process looks like is we get introduced from a number of different ways, but it's not very difficult to send us a pitch deck, have a 20, 30 minute call on the phone for us to quickly realize, does this even fit within our, our broad thesis that we've laid out? And then we move down the path and start to really determine in, in terms of interest level, uh, what it is that exists and what doesn't exist. But really, when we see financings take place at the seed level, we'll reach out very proactively. Hey, no, you're not raising money for another 18 or 24 months. But then we also uh, want to get on their radar and say, hey, look, we are typically a Series A investor. Uh, see that you just closed the seed round. This is nothing but email communication at this point. But we'd love to start a dialogue because it sounds like you're doing something very, very interesting that, that we would like to follow and track. And so sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's us uh, using our relationships and our networks with many of these accelerators that are now out in the ag and the food space. And again, these are financings that take place well before we're ready to make an investment in them. But what we see it as in an agricultural term is we're planting the seed. All of those aren't going to sort of flower and bloom into, into what we're looking for. But if we plant enough seed, we believe that the deal sourcing will be made easier and that we'll have multiple opportunities in front of us when companies are ready for our type of money. So in some cases, FGC pursues the relationship early after hearing the news of a seed round being raised. In other cases, like the case of NanoGuard Technologies, which we're profiling here today, it comes from a credible recommendation. Venture partner and general counsel John Perriam tells a story of what attracted them and ultimately led them to investing in NanoGuard Technologies. 
NanoGuard is an example of a different way that sometimes we get connected with companies. And, and that was, I got a call from one of our founders, one of our, one of our current portfolio company CEOs. And he just let me know that he knew about this company. He knew the CEO. He thought a lot of them and he thought it'd be a good fit from what we were interested in. So those, those kind of connections deep into our network obviously are pretty high value from our perspective. So that's how I got connected with, with NanoGuard. Where it fits in terms of what Fulcrum wants to do is, is definitely in the reduction of waste and the increase of food safety. What NanoGuard does is it has a technology around producing uh, high voltage cold plasma that uh, creates a reactive gas that destroys or deactivates microbes, mycotoxins, uh, and also viruses. So it sounds a little science fiction, high voltage cold plasma. The cold plasma just really means non-thermal. So what it does is it pushes air through extremely high voltage electricity, which shaves off for a very short period of time, electrons making the gas highly reactive. And it's that highly reactive gas, which then has this detrimental effect on microbes, mycotoxins, and, and also viruses. The ability to uh, address that, that mycotoxin, especially aflatoxin industry, was really light years ahead of where others. And, and that was borne out by who invested alongside us, which are big strategics in that particular industry, because this is technology that they saw as differentiated substantially from, from what was out there. They broadened that to the antimicrobial space, uh, increasing shelf life for things like strawberries, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, that, that sort of thing by the reduction of, of microbes. And then recently, their technology has started to show real promise in uh, the destruction of, of viruses, which is obviously a very hot topic as well. We actually won't get into the viruses too much on today's episode, as that's more of a recent advancement the company is still testing. But you can see the tremendous potential when it comes to both mycotoxins and extending shelf life of fresh produce. You also heard John mention who invested alongside them. Now, that's an important point and actually a core tenet to Fulcrum's investment philosophy. Here's managing partner Dwayne Cantrell. We are syndicate investors. We don't invest solely uh, in a company. We will always want to be part of what we consider other smart people, and we like to call it kind of stackable due diligence. In other words, I want other people looking at the same thing, and how do we stack it up and look at a company? So we're always uh, looking to build that network, obviously, of co-investors, and that's an important part of what we do. In the case of NanoGuard Technologies, not only did they invest alongside other savvy investors, but they were joined by two strategic investors, Mommy Ventures, which is the venture arm of the Andersons, and Bungie Ventures. Both companies are major players in the grain trading, storage, and handling business. Here's John Perriam again. It's always interesting to us if a strategic in a particular area is interested in a technology because very often they know a lot more than we're ever going to know in a particular niche area. So getting one or more strategics to vet the technology is, is, is always interesting. Um, the best case scenario, at least from our perspective, usually is if you can get two competing strategics to invest on some level because they tend to balance each other out a little bit. But from our perspective, we usually see it as a, as a benefit if it's handled correctly because of the deep level of expertise brought on the, on the front end from that company vetting the technology, but then also on the back end, as long as you have a, a partner that's looking to, to really push the technology out there, it can open up a lot of doors for the company. 
Okay, well, let's hear from that company. Our featured conversation today is with Larry Clark, CEO of NanoGuard Technologies. Larry retired from a successful 30-year career in the grain business with Bungie Limited before eventually getting connected with NanoGuard. His last position with Bungie was managing all of their North American assets, so he clearly knows this industry. As a former grain guy myself, although of course never close to that level, I related deeply to this conversation, to Larry's background, which includes, like mine, trading operations and risk management, and to the problem that NanoGuard is solving. I'll invite you into the conversation here where him and I are reflecting on the fact that in grain trading, it's kind of hard to put your finger on exactly what skill set you're developing, except to say you learn how to make money. I had a couple of bosses said they, they've always found it hard to put into words the main attribute that I brought to Bungie with one exception that I knew how to make money. Whatever position I tended to be in, that's what I focused on. They worked really well with a startup. You have to be focused. A startup that's too scattered is going to spend all its money running in circles trying to chase the shiny ball or the next best thing. But you also have to know what to focus on. And ultimately, for a startup, the real focus initially or maybe initially and always, is revenue. If you can't get to revenue, the startups fail. And and while you're raising money in the interim, the people who you're raising money from want to see that there is revenue at the the end of that rainbow. And and that, again, a company like NanoGuard Technologies, and we'll talk about the foundational technology, but there's so many places that you can go from a revenue perspective. And what I tell my board is my focus is to find the shortest path from wherever we are today to revenue. The shortest path, because the shortest path means less money that has to be spent to get there. And less money being spent usually equates to less risk. When did NanoGuard come up on your your radar initially? And what convinced you that they were kind of ready for that next step into commercialization? So I've been with NanoGuard for three and a half years. Let's round it. I didn't initially want to go back into a startup. but not sure if I was even ready to go back to work at that point. So my previous employer, Bungie, is a large investor. And I obviously have a lot of colleagues and friends that are there. And one of the particular gentlemen was involved and actually sat on the NanoGuard board, called me and asked me if I would do this. And it took a while for him to convince me because one, I didn't want to go into a startup. If you go into a startup to get rich, you're chasing the wrong dream. That's not likely to happen. And it usually is the wrong motivator to get you up up and out of bed in the morning. But some of the first questions I asked him, and and funny, it turns out a lot of the same questions are asked of me now, is what makes NanoGuard different? And and why is the technology going to work? Do we have a patent? And frankly, does anybody care? And he was able to go through those kind of one by one and and allow me to become comfortable. And then also 
you know, we talked a lot about why NanoGuard was going to be important from a global humanities perspective. Once again, if you go get up and go to work every morning just for money, you're probably not going to be as happy as someone who has a greater mindset about it. Everybody needs money. Everybody has to make money. But you find that job that motivates you in different ways, as the old adage goes. If you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I believe that. I got lucky with Bungie. I really did. Uh, and so in this perspective, I still see it in the same way. We're trying to solve problems, global problems that w- will help feed the world and make a little money along the way. Well, let's talk more specifically about NanoGuard, starting with the problem that it solves. You know, the problem it solves is not on a lot of people's radars. It affects them, but they just don't know it, right? Because it's kind of further up the uh, the value stream there. Uh, can you talk about kind of the big problem here that you all are attacking at NanoGuard? Well, I'm going to talk about them in sequence because we've, we've actually got three different verticals that we're, we're focused on right now. And initially, the primary issue, the problem that we were looking to solve was mycotoxins on large row crops. And obviously that that fit very well with Bungie and any of the large, the ABCDs of the world. It fit very well with the farmers and, and the particular mycotoxin that we were focused on was aflatoxin because it's the most prevalent. So our technology was focused on detoxifying these toxins. And why is that important? Well, by virtue of the name toxin, we see that as one from a human health, pet health, animal health, uh, ultimately impeding either uh, the growth of farm animals or long-term cancer causing problems with humans and, and, quite frankly, your pets as well. So the technology itself, we have been optimizing it over the last three years. Uh, when I came on board, there was hit and miss whether we could actually detoxify these these mycotoxins on these large row crops, corn and wheat primarily. And in the last three years, we've gone to somewhat greater than 90% capabilities of detoxification. The, the second area that evolved as we were uh, learning how to detoxify these mycotoxins, we we also, through reading of publications and uh, our own experiments, found that we were quite the good antimicrobial technology. And by antimicrobial, I'm saying we could reduce or eliminate mold and fungus and yeast and even viruses. And, and we'll talk about that next. And so jumping back to the mycotoxin piece, Mycotoxins are prevalent. They're caused by poor growing conditions or poor harvest conditions or, Lord forbid, poor growing and poor harvest conditions. And, you know, we focused early on the corn and and wheat, but these occur in rice and peanuts. And just in general, some of the studies for the United States and Canada combined show annual market losses of 100 to $500 million a year. Now, this is an annualized basis. These are, you know, combined human health issues, reduced 
efficiencies in poultry and in the swine market and uh, dairy market and the cattle market. So the reduction of these mycotoxins is extremely important. And currently today, there are no technologies out there that actually detoxify these toxins. And so the farmer takes a huge hit if he has these toxins on his his crop because they're discounted when they move to the market, to the aggregator, the aggregator being the local farm gate or local elevator or the large ADM, Bungie, Cargill. Uh, there are substantive uh, discounts all the way up into the point of they are totally rejectable. And I frankly have lived through the scenario where farmers bring in a crop and the areas have so much mycotoxin or aflatoxin in particular, we have to reject them. And the farmer doesn't know what to do with them. So that crop actually theoretically goes to the dump. Now, the reality is most of these mycotoxins on the large row crops, they, they don't go to the dump. They get blended down and they stay in the supply chain and they end up in our pet food and our animal feed that, that's going to the large industrial animal producers, such as the poultry and the swine and the cattle, ruining, literally ruining feed efficiencies. So being able to reduce these mycotoxins, it saves the farmer from getting the discounts, allows him a non-complex supply chain, being able to get rid of his grain and peanuts and rice, but it also allows the animal industry to have better efficiencies. Okay, so I stepped back, but now let's go back to the microbial aspect. So by being able to reduce microbial activity, such as mold and fungus and such, on fresh fruits, vegetables, meats, we have seen in our research that we've been able to extend shelf life by eliminating or substantially reducing these uh, microbials. What we like to talk about is the the fruits and vegetables and meats that you see show up in the, the grocery store are actually fresher and much closer to what it is like when they're actually freshly picked or freshly processed in the animal industry. So we've closed that timeline from when they're picked and processed to the time they hit your countertop to cook. Because and this is an obscene number, about 35% of all post-harvest food uh, globally is lost, is wasted. And why, why the majority of that is, it's because of these microbial activities. I mean, the food just starts going bad in the supply chain. And by the time it gets to your refrigerator and it sits a few days, we like to throw out the raspberry, the raspberry that you buy from the grocery store, put it in your refrigerator, pull it out a couple of days later, and it is puffed up with a fungus or a mold. So we're seeing shelf life extensions, three to five days on fruits and vegetables, a week or more on meats. We've seen tomatoes last upwards of 28 days longer. So the longer we have within our supply chain to keep these products fresh, the more likely they are not going to be wasted. That 33% food loss or food waste equates to over a billion tons of food every year at a cost of about a trillion dollars per year. 
This is every year. So a billion tons of food. Now, Tim, the way I think about this is there's a lot of money being spent trying to get that extra 1% productivity. Literally billions of dollars spent. 1% more every year in productivity, whether it be in the corn market or the wheat market or the tomato market. And here we are losing a third of it because of food loss and food waste. So I, this is where, when I think about the contrarian, I'm not looking forward trying to make have better yields. I'm looking backwards to try to save the yield that we already have. And I know water is a big deal for you, or not wasting water. Think of all the water, just simply in that particular natural resource uh, that's wasted when we throw material away that possibly could have been uh, used in our uh, daily life. And from a commercialization standpoint, where are you at currently with the business? What are you working on now and what are the next steps? So startups kind of have three phases of life. They, they start out in the lab, right? So we call that bench scale. So the bench scale is really about your device sitting on a bench and you're doing small scale work, you know, a pound or a couple of pounds or a kilogram. And then your next inflection point is you try to move to a pilot. And pilot tend to be a 10x of your bench scale device. We have moved from our bench scale to a pilot. We have a pilot constructed. We actually have it inside of a a Bungie research facility. We're working directly with them uh, because they have the ancillary infrastructure that allows us to um, work with larger volume one to 10 tons type uh, an hour of product. So you have to prove that you can go from what's a a lab experiment to something that looks closer to real life or or commercially applicable. And that's where we are right now in our life cycle. The next cycle would obviously be from moving out of that pilot into installing these devices slowly at first and then exploding, hopefully, hopefully at commercial facilities or or farmers for that matter. The size of our pilot device uh, was sized such that it could handle smaller volumes on a commercial scale and smaller volumes would be something in the fresh fruit and vegetable volumes or tree nuts such as almonds, ground nuts, peanuts in that respect. Not sized such to handle hundreds of tons per hour of corn But once we've proven out at the pilot scale, then the risk level of moving from pilot to a commercial size device is usually fairly low. And if I'm understanding correctly here, you know, let's say I'm I'm a corn farmer and, you know, the measurement for aflatoxin, as I recall, is is parts per billion, right? That's correct. So if I have uh, corn that is 50 parts per billion aflatoxin, that's too high. Nobody wants that. In fact, is, if I'm remembering right, it's actually illegal to take at a certain threshold. I don't know if it's 50, but at a certain threshold, it's illegal to take that uh, over state lines. So if my parts per billion is too high for my local market and I can't take it over state lines, I mean, there's just nothing I can do with it. But with your technology, you're at about 90% reduction. So you could take that from 50 parts per billion down to five parts per billion. Am I understanding that right? You know, technically, you are exactly right. There are FDA rules, and we're working with them to try to work through exactly what is allowed and what is not allowed. 
But from a technical perspective, what you just said is accurate. And once again, today, the farmer's choice is take it to the dump, find a way to blend it down to get under you typically 20 parts per billion is acceptable anywhere inclusive of uh, human consumption. Anything over 300 parts per billion is not allowed in any of the markets. And it depends on, you know, a, a hundred and less can go into uh, the poultry market, 200 and less can go into the swine market, and 300 and less can go into the beef cattle market. Actually, dairy and pet food, uh, while the regulations show an acceptability of 20 parts per billion and less. The reality is the marketplace is starting to demand five parts per billion. And in some cases, uh, the pet food market in particular is starting to require five parts and less. And that's within the United States. And so we're, we're also seeing the Europeans, which they you know, tend to be more aggressive around food safety. They're moving this direction already. So if we're wanting to move product to Europe, they're going to be looking at it with an eye of you know, not what's acceptable in the U.S., but what's acceptable here. And there, again, levels of acceptability in Europe range. We've seen it as low as three parts per billion, upwards of eight parts per billion. It gets really difficult to ship levels of aflatoxin to Europe when it gets down to that point. And I would say wheat flour, wheat is the same thing. Uh, we have similar issues of mycotoxin called Don that shows up on wheat. Yep. Yeah. Oh, boy. Unfortunately, as a merchandiser, I've dealt with all of these, and they can have catastrophic effects. I mean, you think about it, if you're a farmer and you've got... 20,000 bushels, which is, you know, not a lot in the grand scheme of things, uh, of wheat, and it's at five bucks a bushel, that's $100,000. If it's a difference between having a market and not having a market, you know, that's worth $100,000 to that farmer just in one year. I mean, I would think that, you know, a farmer in a situation like that, something like this becomes a no-brainer. It does. And, you know, and let's not even look at it quite as binary. You start seeing the discount scales, you see grain cut the value, not the price, the value cut in half. And the reason I differentiate between value and price, ultimately, if you have high mycotoxin grain, it is not as is valuable. So you have to reduce these toxins because these toxins are toxins and they, they do impede feed conversion in the animal industry. And they will ultimately, they're devastating in the horse market and you know pets. That's why the pet food industry won't allow hardly over five parts per billion now. And tell us about the technology itself. So what exactly are you doing that has these effects? And what does it look like from a real practical standpoint? All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a little bit of the non-scientist science description. And then I'm going to try to bring it back to something that you and I could probably talk about a little more simply, but so we use a, a high voltage cold plasma, high voltage. So we're utilizing voltages of upwards of 80 kilovolts, cold being that we don't create heat. So it's, it's not a high temperature treatment. And the plasma itself is moving into a technical aspect of the fourth state of matter. This high voltage cold plasma said simply is, um, we're charging a gas. And in this particular example, 
because this is what we work with. We use air. So ambient air passed through or in between two electrodes where large doses of electricity are moving from one electrode to the other, energizing the gas or in this case, the air. And what happens is you create this high energy air molecule. We're breaking them apart. These are known as reactive gases. And so these reactive gases have capabilities of detoxifying these mycotoxins and killing microbials uh, and deactivating the viruses. So we then take these reactive gases and we blow them down a pipe to the point where we want to intermingle these reactive gases or energized air with the product we want to treat. So in a real basic way, this is equivalent to a thunderstorm. So the lightning is doing exactly what we're doing. We're doing it under a control basis at a much lower voltage level. So it allows us to energize air in our device and blow this energized air down a pipe to where it's intermingling with the products. And if you want to think about corn, so we're energizing this air, we're blowing it down a pipe, and we have to mix it with the corn. We look to use actually grain dryers, an existing asset that's at most farmers and all of the large aggregators. And that energized air, that reactive gas, as it mixes over a time period of 10 or 15 minutes with the grain as it's moving through the grain dryer, that deactivates the aflatoxin or the mycotoxins. So you could kind of retrofit your technology onto a grain dryer and they would kind of run the grain through the dryer without drying it, obviously, but instead using your technology and can kind of treat it at a similar pace as they would dry it. Exactly. Uh, And that's the one area that I made sure as NanoGuard, it was non-negotiable. We want to be disruptive in many ways. What we don't want to be is disruptive in a way that you've got to change the way you handle things for us to fit into your business. And the same thing can be said for fresh meat, fresh fruits and vegetables. Once again, we started with the large row crops and we know we, we want to be able to treat hundreds of tons per hour to be able to handle the size of these crops. And I'm more familiar with the grain side. That makes perfect sense. Like you said, any farmer that has a fair amount of on-farm storage, uh, and, and not any, but a, but a lot of them have their own dryers. And uh, of course, commercial grain operations in most cases have to have dryers as well. So that would be a pretty pretty low barrier to entry because they're used to that sort of process. What about on the fresh food side? When and how do you treat a more fresh product this way? So these are all post-harvest, right? So in our mind, the sooner you can treat fresh fruits, vegetables, meats, and such, the better off you are. We look to these more than not. We're probably looking at treating these in a batch process. These fresh fruits and vegetables are picked. They're put into these plastic flats, these clamshells, if you can envision these at the grocery store. They are shipped and handled and stored in a refrigerated container. These large refrigerated containers are perfect locations for us to be able to purge the atmosphere in these containers with our reactive gas. 
and therefore reducing the microbial load on these fruits and vegetables and meats as well. What about from a cost standpoint? I mean, this sounds really advanced technologically, which usually in my mind leads me to think this is expensive. You know, is it something where it's a large upfront cost, but it's kind of monetized over a high volume of treated product? Right. That's exactly way we would look at it. So we don't know exactly what the cost of the ultimate devices are going to be. The reason I say that is we're always working to try to reduce the fixed costs. The interesting thing about this is from a variable cost perspective, we have two variable components. One is electricity. And in general, electricity is not overly expensive. And the second one is air. And from last I checked, air is free. So our variable cost is actually very cheap. And so being able to treat this on large volume actually fits quite well. And that's our primary point from a cost perspective. So we're working to get the fixed cost down. Uh, right now, it, it's still very viable from a commercial perspective. And then the variable cost piece of it is, I won't say free, but at some point, it'll feel like free. Um what other options, and we could just focus in on toxins since that's the main vertical right now, what other options do people have for treating these other than just dumping them? Uh, I know there's things like ozone. You know, what, what are the alternatives here? What are the competing products that you're up against? If we talk about the mycotoxins in general, there are a couple of ways you can go at it. One, you can treat it in the field, but you got to treat it before you know you're going to have a problem. Uh, and so likely or possibly you're wasting your money if you're you're not going to have an outbreak that year. Once you have the corn harvested, you can run it through a cleaner and then try to clean out any of the scalping and the brokens and whatnot. Those tend to carry a bit more. You're losing part of your crop at that point as well. So there's shrink involved. And then thirdly, there are binders that work on aflatoxin specifically that you can put in the feed. In the U.S., they actually can't sell it as a aflatoxin binder, so it's put in as a clay product to help feed ingredients flow. It's not perfect. You know, people use it when they have large outbreaks, but none of these are actually solving the problem. They're not detoxifying the toxin. So we're seeing a, a lot of costs go into trying to mitigate, but not actually solve. Where we look at it is solving. You brought up ozone, and, and ozone itself is a reactive gas, but it is a low-energy active gas. And in fact, we have patents on this uh, technology, and one of, uh, one of the pathways that we were forced to follow from the patent examiner was show me that there is a differential between ozone and nanoguard technology. So we had to actually do research and experiments, and, and we were substantially better than ozone. Ozone's been around 50 years. It's not used that often, and there's a reason for that. Nanoguard, we expect in the future, will be used quite often, and we think it's really a, a game changer for the food and feed industry. And I've heard, and I don't know if this is true, that some of these toxins can grow in storage. So once you reduce them, is there a concern they might grow back above a threshold that you've tried to get under? Yeah, super question, because the foundational technology, we talk about it being able to reduce or eliminate these microbials, these molds and fungus. And then we talk about it being able to 
detoxify these toxins. Well, it is exactly the same technology. So when I treat a ton of grain for microbial load, you know, for fungus, it's detoxifying the, the mycotoxins at the same time. It's exactly the same time, same treatment, and vice versa. So you're getting a two for one in that regard. So as long as you store these, this grain properly, you know, we can reduce the fungal load and we can reduce the toxin load. And if it's stored properly, it shouldn't come back to any degree. Do we have to worry about killing off the positive microbes? You know, uh, gut health is becoming a bigger and bigger issue, both in animals and in pets and, and livestock. Do we have to worry about, you know, going too far here and getting rid of some of the positive microbes? So today we can't discriminate. You know, a positive microbe versus a, a negative microbe, both of them are going to be impacted the same way. The way I like to think about it is we see this as cleansing the palate or starting from a fresh perspective. So if we actually clean the palate or clear all the microbes off of it, you get a chance to partake in a designer probiotic, so to speak. Now, there are so many microbes out in the world that we're you know, interacting with. I'm not sure that that totally is a plausible, but I think from our perspective, we like to look at it in that particular way. And we know that the technology works in the seed world as well. And so that there are people looking at our technology to say, let's clean all the microbes off of a kernel of corn. That's going to be a seed corn. And we will then re-inoculate it with the microbes we want to do what we want to do. Well, I, I think it's incredible that you could do this without introducing any new chemicals. I mean, just using air and electricity to me is just mind-boggling. I, I assume that the process is the secret sauce for you here. The patented part is the process. That's right. And, and you bring up an interesting point about, you know, without these chemicals and, and such. So the, the, as we energize this air, once it starts losing that energy, it reverts back to its native state, air. And so the process that we run this through, we leave no residuals from our process. We leave detoxified toxins, we leave deactivated viruses, and we leave dead microbes. But our particular treatment rolls back into this native state, which is air. Well, big thank you to Larry Clark, CEO of NanoGuard Technologies, for being on the show. Such interesting stuff there. It was fun to talk some grain talk. For me, it had been a long time, and uh, it's really great to hear about what they're doing. I've experienced the problem they're solving, and I'm excited to see where they take this. Thanks as well to the Fulcrum Global Capital team for partnering with me on this episode and others. Everything is just so much better when you enjoy the people you get to work with and they seem to share your values. And, and the folks over at Fulcrum are certainly top notch. So you can learn more about them if you'd like over at fgcvc.com. And to all of you out there, thinking of more innovative ways to keep the world fed, fueled, flowered, and forested. Thanks so much for your time and attention. I don't take it lightly. And I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. 